Good morning, Grace. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 10. And since today is Father's Day, I do hope that you honor the fathers who are in your life. I'm sure there are a lot of hardworking dads who have been involved in some way in your life, and they have been a blessing to you today, so you should honor them today. But for some people, Father's Day is hard. It's difficult, just like Mother's Day. And God knows that, and He cares. Jesus cares that Father's Day is hard for you. Maybe Father's Day brings up painful memories. Maybe you lost your father. Maybe he passed away. And so Father's Day is hard for you because you miss your dad. Maybe you lost a child and you are grieving as a father today. Maybe you desperately want to be a father, but you've not been able to. Maybe you want to be a dad, but for some reason your wife can't seem to get pregnant. And so if Father's Day is hard for you, if it's not a joyous occasion, please know that you have a Father in heaven, and He cares deeply about your pain, and He cares deeply about your heartache, and you can just pour your heart out to Him. You can just talk to Him and tell Him how today is difficult, and then one day, Your Father in heaven is going to make every sad thing come untrue. He's going to take that pain away. He's going to take that heartache away from you. And joy will tackle you to the ground. Joy is going to tackle us to the ground one day. We just read it in Isaiah 51 verse 11. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. We will enter heaven singing. Everlasting joy will be on our heads. I have no idea what that looks like. Sorrow and sadness and sighing will take off running, never to be experienced again. And I can't wait, because honestly, I'm so weary of this world. I'm ready for Jesus to come back. I don't know about you. If he comes back before this sermon, great. (laughs) Sorrow and sighing will flee away, never to be experienced again. And that means then that heaven is going to be one heck of a party. It will start with a wedding feast. Who doesn't love a good wedding? A celebration of two lovers, God and his bride that he has redeemed. And there will be good food and lots and lots of good food. And I have it on good order that bacon is on the menu. Lots of bacon. Your taste buds will love you, I promise. I also have it on good authority that the Big Cat Sandwich from Heim Barbecue in Fort Worth, Texas is also going to be on the menu. I mean, look at that baby. It's chopped Texas-style brisket topped with green chili mac and cheese served on top of a jalapeno cheddar bun. I will be sticking that thing in my mouth 
in exactly 10 days and one hour and 45 minutes. I'm not counting down. I also have it on good authority that when you bite into this sandwich, there is a chance you might be raptured straight to heaven. You can ask Mike Ruiz. Is he here this morning? Is Mike in here? He'll be here in the next service, maybe. Mike has had, has had behind barbecue before. He texted me this week while I was working on this sermon. And he said, quick eschatological question. Quick end times question. And I kind of saw the front part of the text and I wondered, what, what's he going to ask me? And then he said, and he had a, sent me a picture of the Big Cat sandwich. And he said, will we be able to eat these in the new heavens and new earth? Please say yes. And so as I'm working on this sermon talking about the Big Cat Sandwich, he sends me a picture of the Big Cat Sandwich asking me if we're going to be eating this in heaven. We have a word for that. Providence. (laughs) Sovereignty. That's the first thing that this big sinner is ordering at the wedding supper of the Lamb, the Big Cat Sandwich. Heaven is going to be mind-blowing glorious because the God that we serve is not a cosmic killjoy. So there will be good food and good music and good wine and good friends and Jesus. Everything you want in a good party, right? Eating a big cat sandwich With Jesus, that's heaven. That's what heaven will be like. That's what life in the new heavens and new earth will be like. But let me ask you this morning, is that how you view heaven? When you think of heaven, or the new heavens and the new earth, and I'm just using those terms interchangeably, when you think of heaven, do you think of it as one big party that never ends? Do you think it was one big loud party and no one's going to call the cops? You should, because that's what heaven is going to be like. One big party. And that's our big idea today. Heaven is going to be one big party. Sadly, that makes so many Christians uncomfortable. They don't like to picture heaven as a party. I don't know why. They don't like to picture Jesus having fun. That's not how some Christians want to view heaven. That's not how some Christians want to view Jesus. And I personally think they need to loosen up a bit. Heaven is going to be the happiest place ever. And we are going to laugh and laugh and laugh so hard that tears come out of our eyes. We're going to break out in spontaneous, uncontrollable, snort-producing laughter. And we're going to dance. And we're going to have a blast. We get to be with Jesus, the one who died for our sins, the one who loves us, and we get to enjoy Him forever. How can that be anything but fun? We get to enjoy Jesus forever. How can that be anything but fun? When you think of heaven today, when you leave from now, I hope you think of heaven as fun. What do you think of heaven? Fun. Listen, there will be no sourpuss, 
No, sour grapes, Christians allowed. It's a party. Jesus is not going to let any sourpuss Christians ruin his party. I like what Steve Brown said. Heaven knows we have enough sour Christians. Genuine Christians ought to laugh a lot. One of the sure signs of God's presence in the midst of his people is the laughter of his people. Heaven is going to be one heck of a party. And since it's going to be one heck of a party, why not invite someone? We'll come back to that idea later. Why not invite someone? Because that's what the Bible is right here. It's one big invitation from God to come to the best party ever. It's one big invitation from God to come and to enjoy Him forever. To come to Him through His Son. Believing in the life, death, and resurrection of His Son. Putting your hope in that and not in what you do. Coming through His Son and what He has done for us on the cross. And through His perfect life. And through His resurrection. And then to be on the receiving end of ages upon ages upon ages of his immeasurable grace, as Ephesians 2.7 says. Paul in Ephesians 2.7 says God's going to lavish his, the riches of his grace upon us for ages. Plural. I have no idea what that means. Plural ages into eternity. Grace, grace, grace. Jesus actually wants to shower sinners, people like us, with never-ending grace. In other words, he wants us to enjoy a party for all of eternity, to dance and to laugh and to be flabbergasted that he is as good as he says he is. He is as good as he says he is grace. It's in his word. Believe it. He wants us to swallow the gospel whole this morning. And he does it all for his glory. All of it is for his glory. Because that's the kind of God he is. Generous and glorious. And isn't that what you're looking for in God? Generous and glorious? I asked Tabitha, our 11-year-old Daughter, our oldest daughter this morning, said, what do you love about God? Tell me what you like about God. And she said, it just came out like that. He's perfect and he's really kind. Oh, Jesus could have come back at that moment. It's everything you want. Understand this, Grace. The goodness of God is of a spreading nature. Okay, God's not stingy with his kindness. God's glory and grace like to spill out all over creation. This is not just some tangent in the Bible. It's the glorious message of the Bible. That's where history is headed. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord covering the earth as the waters cover the sea, Isaiah and Habakkuk tell us. And 1 Kings chapter 10 is a picture of this, a preview of this. So turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to 1 Kings chapter 10. And in 1 Kings chapter 10, we have the nations of the world coming to Israel to gawk at the splendor of Yahweh. 
the splendor of the Lord. Yes, they are taken back by all that Solomon possessed because Solomon is loaded. He's rich. But he's loaded and he's rich because of Yahweh, because the Lord has blessed him. What the Beatles sang was true of Solomon. Baby, you're a rich man. Baby, you're a rich man. Baby, you're a rich man too. You keep all your money in a big brown bag inside a zoo. What a thing to do. I have no idea what those lyrics mean. I don't think the Beatles do either. Lord knows what they were ingesting back then. We'll see that with Solomon, though, in this chapter. He had a personal zoo with apes and peacocks and horses and mules. Some rich men collect cars, don't they? Classic cars. Not Solomon. He collected apes and peacocks and horses and mules. And women. We'll save that for next week's sermon. Solomon was loaded. And the author of 1 Kings is not stingy with his use of the word gold in this chapter. He uses it 14 times. He likes spilling ink on that word gold. In Hebrew, the word for gold is zahav. Like Solomon is saying, I zahav all the gold. That's how I memorized it in seminary in beginning Hebrew. I met with my friend Ross at 5.30 a.m. at Starbucks, and we would cram for uh, Hebrew quizzes, and we came up with things like that to help us remember. Zahav, gold. I, Zahav, all the gold. That's what Solomon says. The author of 1 Kings wants you to know just how rich Solomon is. He's not shy about this. But the author quickly makes the connection between all of Solomon's gold and the reason for it. Yahweh. The Lord. Solomon has all this cheddar because of the Lord. Solomon throws the best parties because of the Lord. Because the Lord is generous and glorious. Because the Lord is perfect and really kind. So 1 Kings chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, and hear the word of the Lord now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. Notice that the author is connecting Solomon with Yahweh, with the Lord. And we see this in verse 1, which says that the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. So Solomon is not some uh, rogue, ancient, Near Eastern mogul operating on his own. His accomplishments, his wealth find their source and they find their root in Yahweh, the generous and glorious God, the perfect and really kind God. 
And so Yahweh's reputation, God's reputation, was the reason the queen of Sheba was drawn to Solomon. And understand that when the Old Testament speaks of the name of the Lord, it refers not just to the name Yahweh. Yahweh is God's covenant name in the Hebrew language. And when the Old Testament speaks of the name of the Lord, it's not just referring to the name Yahweh. It also refers to His attributes, His character, His ways, what He is like. You can say someone's name and know what they are like. If I say the name Trump you automatically make connections with what kind of person that person is, right? So the queen of Sheba has heard about Yahweh. She's heard what kind of God he is, how he is generous and glorious, how he is perfect and really kind, how he blesses his people, how he loves his people with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. And now the queen of Sheba wants to go see it for herself. She's seen Solomon on the news. She's read about him in Time magazine. She follows him on Twitter. But now the queen of Sheba wants to meet him and find out more about his God, Yahweh. And she's traveled quite a way to get there. Most scholars locate Sheba in South Arabia, present-day Yemen, some 1,000 miles below Jerusalem. So this queen has been on this long road trip. And when she shows up, as verse 1 says, she wants to test Solomon with hard questions. And so I picture her, this is how I picture her. I picture her with a box of trivial pursuit questions. You know what? I was working on this sermon this week with this. And I came home, and there were three or four trivial pursuit questions sitting on the counter in our house. We have a word for that. Providence. Or the government's nanobots that are in my brain are really working. I'm kidding. Sort of. This is how I picture the Queen of Sheba showing up with a box of trivial pursuit questions. Nothing is phasing Solomon. Geography, blue, entertainment, pink, history, yellow, arts and literature, brown, science and nature, green, and sports, leisure, orange. She's quizzing Solomon, and he answers every single question in every single category. I picture the queen pulling a card out and asking Solomon all the questions on the card. This is how I imagine it. So bear with me, if you would. Bear with my silly imagination because this is what I think of when I read this text. This is how I imagine their conversation goes. They sit down and the Queen of Sheba says, okay, Saul, question one. We'll start at the top, geography. Where's the Sears Tower? And Solomon says, Chicago. Okay, says the Queen, moving on to pink entertainment. What movie star was married to Carol Lombard from 1939 to 1942? And Solomon says, easy, Clark Gable. Give me something hard, lady. The queen says, all right, let's test your history knowledge. Who allegedly led the first expedition to reach the North Pole? And Solomon says, Robert Peary, next. The queen says, okay, what's Doonesbury's first name? Solomon says, easy, it's Michael. I read the comics every day. Hello, come on, stump me. And the queen says, all right, Mr. Smarty Pants. 
Let's see how good you are at science and nature. What disease did Mary Mullen carry? And Solomon says, duh, typhoid fever. You think I don't know that? She was a cook who infected 51 people with typhoid fever and three of them died. I have cooks in my palace. I know all about Mary Mullen. I ain't getting typhoid fever. Ain't nobody got time for that. And the queen says, okay, last question. Sports and leisure. For you, the king, what suit is the suicide king? Solomon says, hearts. Come on, Queen of Sheba, have you seen the sermon graphic for this sermon series? And so the Queen of Sheba went through the whole box of questions from Trivial Pursuit. But she couldn't stump Solomon. Why? Because as we saw back in chapter 3, the Lord gave him wisdom. And if the wisdom of Solomon was not enough to face her, she caught a glimpse of his house the food of his table. Solomon fed between four to 5,000 people every single day. That's a lot of big cat sandwiches. She saw the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers. So the queen of Sheba is overwhelmed at all of this. But then notice what the last part of verse 5 says. And she saw his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord. There was no more breath in her. The queen of Sheba's visit culminated in seeing the burnt offerings at the temple, and she begins to hyperventilate. She needs a brown paper bag to breathe into. Like the Beatles sang, she knows that Solomon keeps his money in a big brown bag, and she needs to borrow it to breathe into because now she's hyperventilating. She can't take in the wonder and the awe and the splendor of Yahweh, Solomon's God. And so she observes the sacrificial system at the temple. She sees the animals. She sees the altar. And Solomon explains what the burnt offerings were all about. Substitutionary atonement. Something dying in your place for your sins. And so Solomon tells her, the burnt offering means that we are accepted by God. When the animal is completely burned up on the altar, Yahweh is telling us that we are forgiven, that we are righteous, that we are loved, and we are accepted by God. And get this, queen, we can smell that we are forgiven. How great is that? Do you smell that brisket cooking? We get assurance that we are forgiven by smelling brisket on the altar. We can actually smell that we are forgiven. The smell of the big cat burnt offering means that God has accepted our sacrifice and we are clean and forgiven. But God didn't just accept the worshiper, did he? The burnt offerings actually gave God pleasure. Think about that. When they offered burnt offerings, it actually brought God pleasure. Three times in Leviticus chapter 1, where Moses explains the burnt offering, we read the phrase, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The burnt offering was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And these were the sacrifices that Solomon is explaining to the queen of Sheba. And so Solomon tells her, the purpose of confessing our sins 
is not to render, render us miserable by simply reminding us of what great sinners we are. It is to remind us of what a great Savior we have. And the Queen of Sheba is shook. She can't take it in. She's breathless. She's hyperventilating. She needs a brown paper bag to breathe into. She's shook because she's taking in the kindness and the mercy and the grace of Yahweh. And this is precisely what Jesus wants. He desires the nations to come and worship him and to enjoy him. This has been his his plan for all eternity, that all peoples from every nation, race, tribe, and tongue would come to the party. 1 Kings chapter 10 is reminding us that heaven is going to be one big party. We will celebrate for eternity what a glorious and generous Savior we have. We will celebrate for eternity how our God is perfect and really kind to people like us. And we'll eat big cat sandwiches with Texas-style brisket and green chili mac and cheese all on top of a jalapeno cheddar bun. We'll celebrate for eternity what an incredible Savior we have. And we'll laugh snort-producing laughter until we can't catch our breath and we need a brown paper bag. And we'll dance. I don't know about you, but I can't wait. How do you spell heaven? P-A-R-T-Y. How do you spell heaven? P-A-R-T-Y? Because Jesus is not a cosmic killjoy. Jesus is not a killjoy. And if you don't believe that, you might need to loosen up a bit and listen to what the Queen of Sheba says next. After the Queen of Sheba catches her breath, she says this in verses 6 through 9, and hear the out of breathness and the wonder and awe that's in her voice as she's breathing in and out of this paper bag. That's how I picture it. She says, the report was true that I heard in my own land, in verse 6, look at verse 6, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and part of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpasses the report I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Whew, I gotta sit down. The Queen of Sheba says that she what she heard was not even the whole truth. Solomon's wisdom and prosperity and all his riches and all his gold blew all of her categories. She sees what the blessing of the Lord on his people looks like. Happiness and joy. 
And that's the appropriate description of the people of God. Happiness and joy. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, Isaiah says. We shall obtain gladness and joy all because of Jesus and all for his glory. But then this pagan queen bursts forth in praise to Yahweh. She affirms that Yahweh has delighted in Solomon and set him on his throne over Israel. And she sounds off with the reason for this in verse 9. Because the Lord loved Israel forever. You can answer all of your questions about God's goodness and all of his kindness to people like us with those words. Because the Lord loved Israel forever. Why will there be big cat sandwiches in heaven? Because the Lord loved Israel forever. Why will we laugh with with snort-producing laughter, with tears running down our eyes, laughing so hard we can barely breathe? And why will we dance and why will we sing forever? Because the Lord loves Israel forever. Why are we forgiven of all the horrible, the absolutely horrible things that every single one of us think and say and do? Because the Lord loved Israel forever. Why did God give up his one and only son to die a brutal death on the cross for our sins? Because the Lord loved Israel forever. And because the Lord loved Israel forever, heaven is going to be one big party. And we see that in verses 11 through 29 to the end of the chapter. It's a picture of, really, it's a picture of the nations coming to worship Jesus. We have all these pagan kings coming to see Solomon, and it's a picture of what heaven's going to be like, the nations coming to worship Jesus. So look at verse 11. Moreover, the fleet of Hiram which brought gold from Ophir, brought from Ophir a very great amount of almug wood and precious stones. And the king made of the almug wood supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, also lyres and harps for the singers. No such almug wood has come or been seen to this day. And King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired, whatever she asked, besides what was given her by the bounty of King Solomon. So she turned and went back to her own land with her servants." Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold, besides that which came from the explorers and from the business of the merchants and from all the kings of the west and from the governors of the land. King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. And he made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three minas of gold went into each one. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps and the throne had a round top. And on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrests while 12 lions stood there, one on each end of a step on the six steps. The like of it was never made in any kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold and all the vessels of the house of the force of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Thus, King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. 
Every one of them brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Ku, and the king's traders received them from Ku at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. And so all that we just read, all that's happening in verses 11 through 29, it's really a picture of heaven. All the gold and Solomon's crazy throne and the apes and the peacocks and the spices and the fanfare, all the tongue-twisting things like Solomon shells out 600 civil shekels at the seashore. Surely the 600 shekels that Solomon shells out at the seashore are silver. I got tongue-tied on my own tongue-twister. All of this is a picture of heaven. A picture of the nations flocking to King Solomon is a picture of heaven when all the nations will come and celebrate King Jesus. That's what 1 Kings 10 is about. The Queen of Sheba Hiram, king of Tyre, and the kings of the west all become the paradigm for worship in heaven. And imagine what diversity it was. The queen of Sheba from the south had her own customs and her own ways. And Hiram was different. He was from up north in Tyre. And the kings of the west came. All of these people were different from each other. I mean, imagine it. And that's exactly what Jesus wants. For his church. We want it the other way, don't we? Give me a church where everybody's white. Give me a church where everybody's the same. Give me a church with just cowboys. Give me a church with the cool, hip millennials. Give me a church with the economically stable. Give me a church with just hymns for songs. Give me a church that doesn't sing hymns at all and only sings hill song. You know what God says to that? Boring, boring. God wants to see people from every nation, race, tribe, and tongue, and every social, economic background coming to worship Him now and forever. So, 1 Kings chapter 10 then becomes a picture of what worship will like on the new earth. All people groups, all united around the one true God, enjoying one big party. I like what Randy Alcorn says about the diversity of clothing and styles in heaven. Have you ever thought about that? What we will wear? Listen, there's not going to be this like gigantic fog machine and we're all wearing these white robes and carrying harps. That's not heaven. Boring. I love what Randy Alcorn says. He says, we can imagine ourselves dressed in heaven the way people in our culture dress on earth. Does that mean some people wear jeans and t-shirts while others wear dressier clothes? Why not? I'm a jeans and t-shirt kind of guy. That's the best sentence on heaven that I've ever read outside of scripture. Heaven for me is wearing black boots, black jeans, and a black t-shirt while eating a big cat sandwich. And if you wear all black while you're eating a big cat sandwich and you accidentally spill barbecue sauce on your shirt, you can wipe it off and it doesn't stain your clothes. But why not all the diversity in heaven? 
Just imagine it, a man from Papua New Guinea wearing a loincloth and holding a spear in his hand. A woman from the 18th century wearing one of those big flowing dresses where they cinch your stomach up with that. Is it a corset? I don't know what it is. A cowboy with super starched wranglers and ivory snap button shirt. A 1960s hippie Jesus movement guy. A gothic girl dressed in all black. Pale face, black lipstick. A millennial with a well-oiled hipster beard. That's what heaven is is going to be like. That's the mission of God. People from every nation, every race, every tribe, every tongue, coming to worship and enjoy the triune God in their own culture, in their own style, in their own dress, in their own language. And that's our mission here at Grace. And that's why we're here on the Central Coast, because God has each of us here so that we can share his love, we can share his gospel with all the people around us that don't know him. We have a very unique kingdom opportunity and responsibility here on the Central Coast. We have a very unique opportunity and responsibility here on the Central Coast. I've told you this before, but did you know that the Central Coast is the number two never-churched region in America? We need to be reminded of that. We're number two on the list of places where a higher percentage of our population, from Santa Barbara all the way up to San Luis, where the highest percentage of our population has never once set foot in a church. 15% of the population on the Central Coast has never set foot in a church once on a Sunday. So if they aren't gracing the doors of our churches... Where will they hear the good news? Where will they hear about coming judgment, eternity in hell if they don't repent? Where, where will they hear about the coming party? Where will the 15% hear that Jesus loves them? Now listen, they're going to think you're crazy. But how else will they hear this crazy good news? They may laugh at you. I had a guy laugh at me one time because I invited him to church. And about six months later, he was sitting in the pew. Now, let me share one more sobering truth with you. We're also ranked number nine on the top post-Christian cities in America. There's eight spots up in the northeast. There's one in the northwest. And then there's us on the central coast. We have a very unique opportunity to share Jesus with the 54% of our population that is post-Christian. That means over half the people here have never regularly been in church. They don't know the Bible at all. They don't know who Adam and Eve are. You bring that up and they say, who are Adam and Eve? I have no idea. I never heard of them. They think Jesus is a curse word. They're lost. And Jesus put you here so that you could tell them the good news that God loves sinners. Listen, this is where history is heading. The wedding supper of the Lamb. History is moving to one big party. Man, what kind of God comes up with that plan? I'm going to make a world, they're going to mess it up, and we're going to wrap it all up with one big party forever. That never ends. 
History is heading to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Make sure you RSVP to the invitation. If you haven't done that yet, you can do that. You can RSVP right now by admitting that you are a sinner, owning up to your rebellion against God, that you really live for yourself and you think you're God, and trusting in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Will you come to the party? Repent. Change your mind. Turn from living for you and turn to God and believe and you'll be there. That's the good news. That's where history is heading. That's what your, your future holds for you, Christian. The wedding supper of the Lamb. Will you be there? Make sure you RSVP to the invitation today if you haven't yet because eternity in hell is no party at all. Steve Brown says, what we believe is crazy. We believe that there is a God who is the sovereign creator, ruler, and sustainer of all that is. We believe that that God entered time and space and lived the life of a servant, even dying on a cross. We then believe that a dead man, Jesus, got up and walked, ascended into heaven, and one day will come back to clean up the mess. If you believe all that, you'll believe anything. The very fact that we believe is evidence that it is true. Nobody in their right mind would make that stuff up. But it's even worse. The Christian faith says that the sovereign creator, ruler, and sustainer of all, of all that is, loves his creatures with such passion that he can't have a party if they aren't there. What we believe as Christians is crazy, but it's true, right? And Jesus can't have a party if his elect people are not there. Not that he in any way is dependent on us for anything. He's not. Jesus is not dependent on us for anything. He's not. He's just good. He's just really kind. And he loves us so much that he can't have a party if we aren't there. Heaven is going to be one big party. Go tell someone this good news this week. Go tell them that Jesus is perfect and really kind. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are perfect. You're holy, set apart, different. And you are really kind. And that's crazy that a perfect, holy God would be kind to people like us. Because we're not kind to people like us. We're sinners. We deserve your wrath. We deserve damnation in hell forever because of the awful things that we think, say, and do. And yet, you have been so kind to us when the kindness love of God appeared in your son Jesus and so we're overwhelmed it's crazy but we believe it we know it's true because we believe it because we would never make up this story God and yet we believe it and we thank you for that help us to take this good news to the central coast 
so that you would get all glory. In Jesus' name, amen.